Kia ora katoa, everyone, and welcome to the Weekly Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka, and hopefully you know the, the routine now. We, we bring in co-host Peter Bale from somewhere on the planet. Peter, great to see you. Bernard, how are you? When you told me this morning that we were going to be discussing a jib crisis, I had to go and look up what the hell might be happening in Gibraltar. I was only there about a week ago, and I was thinking, Christ, it looked pretty calm to me. There haven't been any IRA people shot on it, shot on the runway, and I thought, Christ. But that did cause me, of course, to go and look up jib board and discover that, in fact, in the 1930s, it was named after Gibraltar. Because, Is that right? You know, you're as, you're as strong as the rock of Gibraltar. Gibraltar embodies ah. our weird sense of, of everything that's strong. But of course, what Gibraltar really means is Jibal al Tariq, which is the mountain of Tariq, because it's a uh, you know it's one of the pillars of Hercules at the at the um, at the entrance to the Mediterranean, uh, and was of course for fifteen hundred years Moorish. Wow! Any more history you want from South no, Andalusia? That is amazing because you live. Well, you have you have a place that you go to, which is just across I, the border. Possibly, yes. Yeah. Yes, I do. I do. I'm, not there, I'm not there at the moment, but yes, I do. And I, in fact, I'll be doing another hoon from with you that with that not next week, but the week after. Oh, fantastic! Well, actually, I feel like I've learned something about a core part. Well, of nobody our nobody ever says that when they're on the car cupboard. <laughs> Jib board. Well, and of course, it's one of these products now that oh, um, Gibraltar board. But Gibraltar of course, board. if it was Australia, we'd call it Jibo board. Jibo, yeah. Um, it's one of those weird things where the product brand name has become synonymous with the actual product, which is a problem in itself. Like, you know, I'm going to do the Electroluxing. That's what I used to say to my mum. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Got the Electrolux out or now. The, or as we say in England, the hoovering. The hoovering. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's great. It's great to see. Yeah, well, it's you not there, create a vacuum over here. And, and, <laughs> uh, yes. No, this is some. Um, Fantastic. And later on today, we're going to talk about the jib crisis uh, with Sam Stubbs from Simplicity Living uh, and also Simplicity, the KiwiSaver group. Um, and we'll be talking to Robert Patman as well. So a couple of special guests with us um, later in the hour. Um, Peter, though, you have been in London watching all of the drama of the platy jube. You were telling us last week about the great flyovers, but also Boris Johnson who seems to have survived, or maybe not. Well, I, I, I might have told you that, that there's, a, there's a fabulous phrase that um, David Cameron used about uh, Boris Johnson a long time, ago, a long time ago, that he's the greased piglet, that he, he just always you know, <laughs> runs through your hands. But, of course, with a lot of people in England, or particularly people of the sort of commentary class, that became something I was listening to recently, which was the greased piglet, which I thought was <laughs> rather good. And so... <laughs> So with the, one of those sort of upper class inabilities to pronounce your W's, your R's rather. So the Guist, the Guist piglet, um, you know, narrowly survived a, um, uh, a no confidence motion on, on, on Monday. And it was quite entertaining in a way because you, you saw um, particularly uh, William Rees Mogg, who I don't know whether, whether um, many people in New Zealand know who William Rees Mogg is, but he also is somebody who would, who can't pronounce his R's and tends to say Guist piglet. But um uh, he, um, previously having said that um, Theresa May was completely stuffed when she had 147 people vote against her in, the, in the, her, uh, one of her no-confidence votes, um, Boris, Boris had 148, but he said, one, one is enough. One is enough. <laughs> and as, as Marina Hyde, who I occasionally quote, quote from here, said that he was, he was looking through his rose-tinted monocle, which said, gives a very good... <laughs> indication of the kind of person that he is. I mean, good, good laughing, because I wish I'd thought of it. 
um, that is fantastic. Uh, but is he a dead? So man? yeah, he won. He won. He's the, the guest piglet got out of it. And as usual, he's he's spraying off ideas in a way that only old ideas usually in a way that only a columnist could. So in the in he's come up with this um, rather extraordinary idea, which I immedi- immediately made me think, of course, of the subprime debt crisis of giving people on housing benefits um, the idea, the the opportunity to uh, buy houses on 95 percent mortgages using their housing benefit to convert it into um, into a, into a sort of state provided mortgage, <coughs> which also led Michael Gove, who. Um, you might know as the minister for leveling up, and somebody's actually saying, Bernard, that you need to level up because your your, your wall is looking as though it's um, on a, on an angle. But yeah, it's, so we it's have like this thing one called of leveling those, up. Yeah, no. The reason that it's on an angle is that it's actually a light fitting that is not straight. So it's like one of those. Oh, really? pic- you walk into a room and you see a picture on the wall, and you see. And you think it's not quite straight, and so you try to move it, and you can't move it. Yeah, it's a so, little tricky. It's a little tricky to do that with a light fitting. I must with a with a yeah with a PDL a PDL light fitting from Christchurch. Um, yeah, but one of our <laughs> one of our uh, um uh, one of our attendees suggested I am leaning left, which is you know hey this is what I'm being accused of. No, I think you're very much in the centre. Although although I'm I'm I think we might have to tackle the person last week who said that I was um, cynical, and somebody some bugger called me a neocon, which I'm definitely not going to. You know, well, I've, kind of I've been accused of being a woman. I don't come on this podcast for abuse. No. And actually, um, the uh, uh, podcast last week was quite um, uh, well distributed. In fact, was mentioned um, by uh, Bri- was Bryce, Bryce Edwards, who accused all of us of being, apart from uh, Josie Bagani, of being um, warmongers for being so tough on China. Oh, yes, I read some bollocks from him this week about, about some of that as well, actually, because he's, he was also suggesting that New Zealand needed an independent foreign policy and to sort of steam off. I mean, who, you know, anyone would think New Zealand was a small island at the bottom of the South Pacific that could uh, look after itself. Yeah, and I think buying a few drones here and there is is not quite, you know, becoming nuclear powered. So, um, but certainly uh, we we got our plenty plenty of attention last week, and um, actually more than fifteen hundred downloads. So, um, very successful. Now, you mentioned that Boris Johnson is opening up the idea of helping people to buy their housing association or council flats. Yeah. Mm. Um, this is a Maggie Thatcher special, of course. This was the idea of creating the homeowning um, democracy owning democracy yeah yeah and um, <laughs> and to turn all the sort of working class um, Brits into conservative voters which you know for a bunch of people it worked until the housing market cr- crashed in the end of the 80s hmm. Hmm. yeah and, I think you know look, look it's a really it's a really difficult issue in the UK and one of the problems that happened and I think it's probably happened in New Zealand I mean I'm told from people in the know that there are you know that I think Bill English sold is probably on the podcast as usual watching um, is it is it true that he sold much of the New Zealand New Zealand um, state housing stock, and that there isn't a single Kyanga or a house in, in um, not Tauranga? quite is that correct? not quite true. There was a period in the uh, early nineties when Ruth Richardson started selling them, and mm-hmm. then um, towards the end of that national government, we there was a bunch of sales in the Wairarapa, and uh, we saw um, a few sold off here and there, but on the whole, they stayed. Um, however, they, their stock wasn't increased uh, through the late 2000s up until the late last government. It's only the current government which has been looking to expand the stock. But um, uh, that idea of um, selling off state houses to tenants is 
an interesting one. Uh, we'll see whether Christopher Luxon takes it up. Um, but what I found fascinating about Boris Johnson's idea last night was that housing associations are not government owned, right? That's right. So, that's so right. And <clears throat> that's right. And, 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 and they've actually been incredible because what happened, with, of course, with the, the sell off of, of actual council houses was that they were never really replaced. And so you, you will be most of me, I was thinking about you yesterday, actually, Bernard, as I so often do, but there was a discussion here about, you know, the only, the, someone was saying the, the, the only way to increase the housing stock is actually to increase the housing stock, you know, and, and, and this, is, this is the problem that, you know, you have, um, you may not believe it, but in England, there are, there are NIMBYs who, who don't particularly want their little village greens turned into, you know, hideous housing, housing estates with people not like them. Well, I'm seeing um, lots of green it, space behind you there, Peter, which I have exactly. No, of. no, no. There's a, there, there, that's what we're definitely protecting that one. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. There was a fox there the other day, actually, that came down and ate a bird. And I was quite impressed by that, actually. It was a, it was a sort of David Attenborough moment. But the, um, yeah, so the idea is that you, you would sell it, but it's not going to happen. You know, the mm. thing is that it, he is just throwing off ideas, spaffing off ideas, as somebody said, which is one of his rather unpleasant expressions. Um, and, and someone said, you know, this is what you get when you get a newspaper columnist that, you know, every day he's got to come up with a new column and he just fires off another half-assed idea. So how was this? Michael how... Gove was talking about this yesterday and, and saying, oh, well, well, I think this time we'll replace all the houses that we, that, that people are allowed to buy. And actually, look, it's, it's a really, it's a double-edged thing. I mean, the, 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 the Thatcher right to buy thing has created a flow through of, uh, generational wealth and inheritance in the what you might think of as the working classes in England that wouldn't otherwise have happened, or it's created the passing on of uh, unsale, you know, ghastly, unsaleable houses to, to to other generations. But you know, people people um, it, it was hugely popular uh, amongst you know groups of people. It did allow a breakthrough of generational wealth to be passed through. But it did also dramatically reduce the housing stock available to to poor people, poorer people. Yeah, uh, there has been a lot of talk from the Johnson government about getting a lot more houses built, about changing the rules about green belts and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, but where, who lives who lives in the green belts, Bernard? Uh, Tories. Tories, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and in particular, the guy with the the other guy with the monocle, who's. Um, who seems the most seems the biggest parody of a toff in in public life I've ever heard of? Jesus, more than more than William Rees Mogg. Who's that? That's right, William Rees Mogg. Oh, William Rees Mogg is is the yeah, well, he's he's often called the minister for the nineteenth century. <laughs> yes, isn't he the one with like seventeen kids who's never met? He's he's, he's got like seventeen kids, and he's his nanny his 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 nanny still lives with him and looks after his kids now, and for, and is called quotes nanny. <laughs> yeah, so he, he basically he, he yeah he 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 lives in a lives in a Mary Poppins uh, life. He is in fact Mr. Banks. It's amazing, really, um, what's going on in Britain. But you know, just over the oh, all right. Uh, so Bernard, so, so Charles Hett has, has reminded me, of course, that William Rees-Mogg, that William was his father. Now William also couldn't pronounce his R's, which which is quite tricky when you're when you're called William. <laughs> and um, uh, at one point, he was the editor of the, it had been the editor of the Times when Rupert Murdoch, Murdoch took it over and was well known as a as a Rupert Lickspittle. Oh. And in his in his advancing years, when I was working at the Times, I um, uh, went to the to the Garrick Club, or as he called it, the Gowick Club, with him for lunch one day. <clears throat> and he said, "Oh, Peter, I need a blog. We're going to call it the Weesmog Blog." 
and he would uh, too much fun. Uh, in the in the mornings dictate to his secretary down the line from Somerset his his um, you know fantastic words of wisdom uh, and and then she would email it to me and then I would put it into his blog. Fantastic. How has Britain the we spoke like, blog? I know. How has Britain managed to survive with all this? You know, in in well, I shouldn't be quite so rude, but as such a disconnected ruling class how, how do they keep getting voted back in what it always amazes me that there hasn't been some sort of um uh democratization of politics but it seems like you have to have gone they're to, born to rule it's the only way you can run 60 million people on you know 60 million people on an island the size of um Petone, you know yes well um <laughs> so britain though, imagine 60 million people living in Petone. jesus yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that would be a good well, idea, or, actually. Yeah, New Zealand, all right. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, what I'm curious about, though, is uh, how well the British economy is going with its ongoing... Not terribly, not terribly well, although, Boris, you would absolutely... I mean, the Guist Piglet um, came up with an absolutely fabulous line yesterday because the, the OECD, which, as we, we have occasionally discussed, is the, um, <clears throat> you know, is generally written not, in fact, by the OECD, but by the, by the local treasury. And the OECD has forecast that by the by the end of next year, Britain will have the the, the biggest economic collapse of any member of the OECD, uh, except Russia. <laughs> and, Boris, and but but Boris rather elegantly said, "Well, it's because we it's because we've been we've got a different pacing from the rest of the world because we came out of um, uh, the COVID pandemic so fast, you know, and and growth accelerated. So we'll tail off our growth a little earlier." It's just absolutely make it it's the most fantastic make it up as you go blather that you can possibly imagine. Bonkers, because Brexit has actually hurt their trade quite substantially. And oh, is... well, that's, oh well, so the excellent thing this week as well with 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 Brexit. I'm sorry, as, as William East might call it. I'm sorry, I've got to stop that. This that's is really, this is really, this is a joke. I'm mocking, I'm mocking it... people with I'm, with lifts and speech impediments. But uh, one of the most amusing things, so there was a, a regional growth um, uh, analysis done by the FT, and the only parts of the United Kingdom that have grown at all since Brexit are London, which keeps, just keeps on growing because it's, you know, eight and a half million people um, uh, eating, um, drinking almond milk if they can still afford it and uh, having, you know, flat whites and crushed avocado. And uh, Northern Ireland, which, of course, is essentially still in Brexit, still in the European Union. Of course, yes. <laughs> so it's very telling, you know, that the the you know the you, you've got the car industry starting to collapse. Jaguars, you know, moving moving operations out of out of the UK at the moment. It's, it's, it's true to say that Nissan has continued to move, make cars in Sunderland and move some electric cars here. But you know, the various things that Britain's actually quite good at: cars, drugs, and so on. I mean, I mean, legal drugs, pharmaceuticals um, are facing real problems. The other thing, Britain's always been extremely good at and is going to become slightly problematic weapons, which they're always slightly embarrassed about. But they have, you know, they have a got, very good defence industry. And, of course, now the most um, uh, widely promoted and popular shoulder launch missile in the world, so popular that exactly. Ukrainians are naming their kids after the in-law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, my initials are now MLRS for multi-launch rocket system. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, um, and, and, and what I'm curious... Oh, Jesus Christ. Somebody, here's Dara saying, can we get back to an ATRO focus? Uh, Excuse me, I'm talking about the housing crisis in another country. Oh, uh, yeah. And, um, and also how New Zealand's economy is doing better than Britain's because we quite like trade and we weren't stupid enough to um, withdraw from the European Union when we had a, had a deal. Um, Sorry, Bernard, we weren't in the European Union. Don't no. forget, you know, you and but I if, were around when, when Rob Muldoon bought Rolls-Royce engines, insisted on buying Rolls-Royce engines for New Zealand 747s because he, he knew that that might help with the um, negotiations and getting British support, getting if, access to the European Union. But if we had been admitted to the European Union, we wouldn't be stupid enough to pull out of it, I don't think. That's true. That's true. Yeah, you know, you know when you're in, you never pull out, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's wonderful to see uh, Professor Robert Patman arrive with us. Is he? From, Hi, from, Hi, how are you? Hi, Sam. It's hello. Good, thanks. And it's Christ, Robert, you're going to be billed as a co-host soon. This is really, this is really <laughs> concerning. <laughs> so they'll be getting Patman's fatigue before then. Yeah, um, it's wonderful to see you, uh, Robert, and um, with plenty of action uh, around the the world's. Um, political and economic and military stages. Um, what did you make this week of the United Nations coming out quite strongly and saying there was a risk of a uh, food energy catastrophe amongst the world's poorer countries? Well, you could say uh, it was welcome, but belated. Mm -hmm. After all, what we're witnessing here is the consequences of an illegal invasion and an illegal blockade, and under international law, by the way, the naval blockade by Russia is illegal. And, um, but it also highlights the impotence of the UN Security Council because, and it's no reflection on the Secretary General uh, because I think he's probably doing as good a job as could be done in the circumstances, but he's paralyzed by the, UN, the, the permanent members of the UN Security Council, in particular Russia and China, who will exercise their veto to block any action I mean, clearly the naval blockade has to be lifted. Um, something like 20 million tonnes of Ukrainian um, grain have been, and Ukraine's the, I think, the fourth biggest exporter of grain globally, uh, have been holed up in Ukraine because the Black Sea ports have been, particularly Odessa, have been affected by the naval blockade following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that is having knock-on effects Clearly, there's, I think, 41 developing states, according to Mr. Guterres, who are now at risk. Um, and let's face it, even when there's not few shortages caused by an illegal invasion of a country, um, many people struggle to get enough food every day anyway. So, uh, uh, you know, if we'd been having this conversation two years ago, we would have reflected that close to a billion people don't get enough to eat every day anyway. But this is clearly making the situation much worse. And as uh, the UN Secretary General pointed out, it's not just the food shortages and the accompanying, you know, increasing cost of living for everyone, including New Zealand, that are affected by the consequences of the war. But in addition, we have the accumulative impact of COVID-19 mm. in many developing countries. And I think uh, some of the figures are quite alarming because... Um, if you look at the number of people who've had the first vaccination in developing countries, um, some of them, it's only about 9% of people who had their first vaccination shot against COVID-19, which compares about against about 66%, 68% of people who've had 
um, their first vaccination shot in the developed world. So there's a huge inequality in that area as well. So unfortunately, we're looking like a, almost a perfect storm. And and the really difficult thing is that it's a double whammy because when you mm. increase oil prices, that increases fertilizer prices, which means the fertilizer for next year's crop is more expensive, more difficult to get hold of. And um, Russia, of course, is one of the biggest exporters of potash uh, mm. and one of those um, sort of ingredients that keeps the rest of the world's crops growing. Is there any real prospect that there might be an intervention to try and lift the blockade, you know, giving the Ukrainians longer range anti-ship missiles or even... Well, Boris, Boris Bernard is talking about, and of course, if we know what a fantastic military strategist he is, um, <laughs> is talking about creating a, um, a kind of Berlin airlift on the water, but it has to go through the Dardanelles, of course, and, and, and Turkey. So it won't happen without Turkey's permission, partly because of the... Um, I think it was at the Treaty of Marseille, Robert, that allows mm. the allows Turkey to, to block uh, access to the to the Black Sea. But of course, Russia's doing a fine job. Russia's found um, quite a lot of grain in other places, you know, in other places that used to be part of Russia, and you know, is quite happily exporting Ukrainian grain as Russian grain. Yes, yeah, so that's a very serious charge that many Ukrainian officials have made that Russia is exporting more grain now than it did before it invaded Ukraine. Wow. And that's because it's stealing Ukrainians grain from the parts of Russia it's occupying and opening up the silos. So these are very serious. These are allegations. We don't know if that is true, but it's uh, being made from a well, number You're of very sources. safe making ac accusations about Vladimir Putin on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the lawyers are on. Yeah, yeah, and you're about as far away from Moscow as you could possibly get in Dunedin, there, Professor. Oh, <laughs> yeah. and there's, yeah. and there's, and there's it, still uh, Mr. Navalny. You know, I always remember Mr. Navalny's ominous words. Though he was asked as he boarded a plane to go back to Russia, having been poisoned by Putin, why he decided to go back to the land where he's poisoned. He said, "Well, look," and he said to a German journalist, "Don't be under any illusions. If Mr. Putin wants to get me, he'll get me in Germany." Um, so I'm just as safe going back to Russia as I am staying in Germany. <laughs> and I, I think the point is that, uh, yeah, if you're a target for Mr. Putin, well, that, that, then he's got quite a long reach. So it, it's going to be difficult to open up these ports and get this grain out. And it looks mm. like the Russians are effectively using the grain and the oil as another way to apply pressure on the alliance involving NATO, the European Union, the UK, and the US, and really putting the sort of price pressure on the, the cost of living pressure on the, the politicians now who are really struggling to, to deal with this, you know, to try and keep it together and um, and try to be maintain solidarity and not essentially cave in and tell the Ukrainians to just give up and 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 so we can all move no, on. I think this and is a critical issue, don't you think, Robert, that that this is this is the kind of problem that is going to cause fracturing of the of the Western of the international alliance about it. Partly also because because it's very much a Western view, a Western public's view that we need to support Ukraine. Whereas, you know, in in a lot of parts of Africa and the Middle East, there's there's quite a lot of support for the Putin position. Yes, but many of those countries, of course, are dependent on Russian grain, um, and uh, you know, in, in a sense, uh, that's true. Uh, and there's a there's a battle of the narratives going on, um, and there's no doubt about it that you know as Mr. Lavrov, the for, um, Russian foreign minister, and Mr. Putin himself has made clear, um, if the sanctions are lifted, then 
there'll be no problem about the export of Ukrainian grain. Uh, but uh, as you said earlier, um, there is a gap between the rhetoric and the actions. Um, well, I'm, and the I'm sanctions are not going to be lifted. Yeah, so, I'm tempted to use the phrase that we might be going against the grain, but that would be just way well, too obvious. Way too obvious. But yeah, what, what would someone who is going though, coming coming back to Bernard's question about what can be done about this? What would be? There's been discussions between Lithuania and the United Kingdom about a sort of coalitioning of the willing, mm. not a NATO uh, <laughs> naval group, but a group of countries. And perhaps they've even suggested bringing in Egypt, for example, who's been affected by this food crisis. Mm. Some developing states and non and developed states bringing together a coalition and actually challenging the blockade, which yeah. would be explosive, I suppose. But um, you know, they may feel well, it'd be, it'd be rather exciting and legally because Mr. Putin. I mean, Mr. Putin's position is completely indefensible in legal terms. And he's basically effectively ripped up the UN uh, rule book and said, what are you going to do about it? And mm. um, if the rest of the world rolls over, then it's going to have dire consequences, not least for smaller and middle powers, which do, dep do depend on a rules-based order. So I agree with you, Peter. Mr. Putin is... Excuse me, Bert, would you just say that again, please, Robert? No. <laughs> I, I, I usually like that at home, but it's, it, very rarely does anyone say, I agree with you, Peter. Thank no, you but so I, much. I agree with Peter that th this is an attempt by the government... The, I mean, let's face it, the invasion hasn't worked out swimmingly for Putin. And there's lots of things actually really causing worry for Moscow at the moment. Mm. But one weapon they have is the food weapon, which they're using... And also, um, you know, the, the cost of living crisis, which is affecting many countries. Uh, it, it's just a question now of whether the West will fracture or actually unite in the face of mm. this. And it will take leadership. And, um, you know, at the moment, <clears throat> it doesn't seem to be too much leadership in Western Europe to counterbalance or to supplement, supplement Biden's yeah. leadership. Yeah, it's been very interesting to have um, have uh, the German Chancellor Schultz and 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 uh, Emmanuel Macron talking about not uh, and it looked like actually still having conversations with with Putin, which you know it seems to me to be actually the right thing to do in a way. I mean, it's very un, it's very sort of um, uh, you know somebody said somebody said I think it was the Lithuanian said the other we didn't we didn't continue having talks with Hitler during the war, but <laughs> I, I'm not sure it's quite like that. But the oh, well. um, you know, the, the, uh, Macron said last week that it was very, very important not to humiliate Russia. But that, um, which I, of course I disagree with that. I mean, Putin's <laughs> humiliated himself. No one made him invade a neighbouring country. No one made him uh, encroach upon the territorial integrity of a country. He's, his state has recognised fully. So uh, well, nobody's forced him into this. And there's no off-ramp for Putin, as far as I can see, because he's basically acted in a way... Uh, even if the United States, as Dr. Kissinger has suggested, and the French and the Germans said to the <laughs> Ukrainians, look, you've got to give up part of your territory. Even if they said that, it won't stick. Mm. The Ukrainians, having experienced war crimes and the, you know, the most terrible treatment at the hands of the Russians, will not accept this. Basically, mm. the Ukrainians will define the terms of the outcome of the war, I think. But it's interesting, in the last couple of weeks, there's certainly been a slowdown in the 
you know, the number and the scale of the victories, if you like, of the Ukrainians. Yeah. And there, does, there seems to be a, a sort of a horrible stalemate developing where the Ukrainians are desperate for longer and longer range missiles and artillery. The Russians are just um, lumping lots of metal in there and, and yeah. uh, consolidating positions. And the danger is that, of course, this just grags and grinds on World War One style for months and months and months and months. All the while, the pressure well, rose we're back, and we're back. We're back to a fractionally larger um, Donbass area of Donbass, you know, the Donbass, Luhansk, and, and Donetsk being held by the Russians. You know, after all this, after three months, after hundred days, we're back to where we were just after two thousand and fifteen and the original, the original um, Russian invasion or, or Russian-led. Uh, uh, rising up of the of uh, the people in Luhansk and, and Donetsk, but uh, Robert, I'm very interested also with um, Biden uh, now looking like he's going to go to Saudi Arabia and um, grovel as Boris did with um, Mr. Bonesaw to ask him if he would increase oil production to to try and counter this problem of um, of uh, uh, living standards, and of course also there'll be a, there'll be a wish that Saudi or an ambition that Saudi Arabia might recognise Israel. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it's, how should I put it? It is an attempt to offset some of the consequences. Um, Mr. Biden feels, I think, very domestically constrained in relation to Ukraine. Although having said that, they have put in 53 billion of military support for the Ukrainians. One thing that's really noticed, however, is that most of the military, at most of the factories producing military weapons in Ukraine have been destroyed by Russian artillery. So they've become actually even more dependent as the war has progressed on e external support. And although they are beginning to get some pretty potent weapons, there is a lag time between receiving them and actually putting them in the field with fully trained personnel. Um, yeah, and it's very interesting with that MLRS, you know, the multi-launch rocket system that, that both um, the HIMAR one from the US and the, yes. and the M200, I think it is, from the UK, that they've both gone in with theoretical, not theoretical promises that they won't be fired across the border uh, into Russia, which I suspect is going to be quite a difficult... Um, well, particularly since um, the Ukrainians are taking heat from Russians following, uh, fire, who are firing <clears throat> artillery behind the Russian border. Um, I, I think that's probably a technicality. The other interesting thing is that sabotage continues to go on in within Russia, again, is not hitting the headlines, but a number of key strategic facilities have taken powerful hits in the last week, uh, which makes me think that the Ukrainians are active in Russia in a military capacity. And um, yeah, it, it's, it, it's, I think that with regard to the Biden situation, I, I think personally that Biden does have to try to steady. Um, the nerves of the Western Europeans. Um, I don't think Macron or Scholz come out of this particularly well at the moment. Um, you, you said it's not a bad thing to be talking to Putin, but Putin, if you read the Russian media, every time they bring Putin up, Putin is convinced that they're winning. And, um, and he lied to them to the back. He, he basically shafted both of them because he promised he'd never invade. He gave that pledge to both Macron and the German leader. He would not invade Ukraine between, and he yeah, made speaking those pledges of, between the middle of February yeah. and the 24th of February when he went about his so-called special military operation. So 
the fact that they continue to try to do business as someone who's basically lied to them, you know, lied to them. I, I don't know why they persist because it, they're not going to mm. get anything out of it. You know, the, the other thing I was I was very struck by and, and put into my um, you know another advertisement for me 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 in, in my world bulletin this week was that um, good stuff Peter and, I'm going to have to pay you money actually to make sure to make sure Jesus that we... that'll be a first that'll be a first <laughs> but Dmitry Medvedev you know who's a protege of of Putin used language I mean we've called out the language in this you know and the othering and so on but he he tw- he put on Telegram the other day. I hate them, the Ukrainians. They're bastards and degenerates. They want death to us, to Russia. And while I'm alive, I will do everything to make them disappear. Uh, I mean, this is, this is such a this is sinister Stalinist uh, rhetoric. So that, that's that, that's that pretty has mild a real world by, impact. That's quite mild by some of the rhetoric that's coming out on Russian TV. Yeah, no, he's a leading control. moderate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's genocide what they're preaching, and yeah. they're talking about eliminating Ukrainians. Did, uh, you know the, the, what's interesting now is an extraordinary. Mr. Putin uh, spoke on Russian TV yesterday, and he made an extraordinary statement. He said that uh, he, you know, he, he he looked back in Russian history and spoke about the territorial ambitions of Peter the Great and compared himself to it, and said that he would be um, claiming back. And made him clear that his territorial ambitions were not confined to the Ukraine. He made that absolutely clear. No, well, he, he was talking Russia about Sweden back and, saying that Peter, Peter, and we will continue. Peter, yeah. yeah, Peter, Peter the Great didn't didn't worry about whether Swedish territory was Sweden. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and but the pressure is still there, and Biden's approval ratings are dropping um, almost as fast as the gas prices are rising. And mm. I've just put into the uh, chat thread there. Some really interesting um, things that have started popping up on uh, gas pumps in American gas stations. These stickers that um, various people have made up with pictures of Biden and and him saying, I did that and pointing to the $5 a gallon gas tank uh, um, stuff. So the longer this drags on and the higher that gas prices rise for Americans, particularly now we've got the oil price over 120 US dollars a barrel, the, in, the pressure just builds and builds and builds politically on Biden and the Europeans, who, and we'll talk about this later on with Sam, mm. are at their own crunch point uh, with the European Central Bank announcing last night they were going to stop money printing and start increasing interest rates, which immediately sparked a sell-off in financial markets where, you know, the, the price is really coming home of, of this continued support for Ukraine and it's hitting cost of living, it's hitting political support. And you do wonder, you know, how long they can just hold it together uh, before they are able to push Putin out of it. Absolutely. I reckon we've got no more than 90 days to get this resolved. Yeah, but the interesting thing is, scenario the scenario you just painted, Bernard, about gas prices in the US, which are always politically explosive, a politically explosive issue, um, is that that may actually make Putin more forward-leaning to take military action, or at least step up the response. Because if this just trickles on as it is, it could look pretty bad for Biden, uh, particularly with the November midterms coming up. And the other thing to note here is the Republicans are not getting all their own way. They've been very much on the defensive over this appalling, most recent appalling, um, you know, mass shootings in school, a school. So, uh, schools, I should say. 
so yeah, I mean, it, it, it on that issue, the Republicans are looking very defensive indeed, and I think Biden is you know uh, not beyond uh, using that issue, um, but yeah, I mean, I I, I think the, the, it's always difficult for democracies, which are quite candid and open about the issues that mm. cause their citizens grief, unlike Mr. Putin's authoritarian system where. Most of his political opponents have been either eliminated or in prison. And you can go to prison if you just simply call the special military operation invasion, which it clearly is. So, you know, we don't really know fully the economic pain that Russia's experiencing. Yeah. Um, And the the sanctions continue to be ratcheted up. Um, And they, you know, 500, it's very difficult to predict, but I think the pain in Russia is very real. Um, but, you know, authoritarian leaders like China, well, I, I make a distinction between China and Russia, but I think particularly the, both the Russians and the Chinese have been talking about the failing West. Partly that assessment is based on what they see as the lack of political willpower to face down public opinion when the public gets yeah. upset about something, although the stance may be right in principle that politicians are not prepared to stay the course. And of course, they're gambling on that. Putin's gambling on the fact that the West will generally roll over and accept his annexation of eastern Ukraine. And all that means for the rules based order in which the Western world and particularly the middle powers and the small powers depend. Robert, the, when, when somebody called anonymous attendee, which is so, so Ms. or Ms., Ms. attendee is asking us a question here, which is that it shouldn't, shouldn't the West provide? Uh, Putin a diplomatic on-ramp uh, and they're making the point that they believe that um, Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis at least understood that it couldn't be 100% sort of confrontation, that there had to be a way for Russia to pull back. Yes, but I think the, the analogy sounds plausible, but it's not. And the reason I'm saying that is because when, when Khrushchev covertly sent medium-range and short-range missiles into Cuba and was caught in the process by U-2 reconnaissance, and that caused the crisis. Um, Kennedy basically was trying to create a situation by which Khrushchev could, if you like, go back, withdraw the the missiles. And what he did, he gave him a face-saving way out, which he said he promised not to invade Cuba if Russia withdrew their missiles. And that would that solved the crisis. But as Kennedy put it, he never had any intention of invading Cuba in the first, you know, in the first place. Now, with regard to the Russian situation, Mr. Putin can end this crisis now. He can withdraw his troops from Ukraine. And, uh, you know, Mr. Khrushchev didn't breach international law and tore up the UN rule book in the way that Mr. Putin has. I mean, Mr. Khrushchev didn't walk into another country, cause $120 billion of damage to its infrastructure, pulverized it and terrorized it. He tried to deliver military assistance to the Cuban government, which was, as far as I know, quite legal. It was at the request of the Cuban government, but he had promised the Americans he'd never do such, do such thing. And there was then a confrontation about it. So I think, you know, 
Um, yeah, Robert, we, can we just not have enough? There's too much bloody history on this show today. Sorry, no, this it's, isn't, it's this isn't the history voice. No, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm loving this, um, and no doubt we'll come back to it. Um, uh, Robert, thank you very much. If, if only there was something we could learn from history. No, no. Well, this is the frustrating so. thing, isn't it? Um, but putting that into context about how different um, Russia's transgressions oh, uh, here goes now, your segue. Na yeah. na now versus the 60s is, is really important. It's great. Robert, thank you very much for coming on. Thank it's you. been lo lovely to have Robert, you. Robert, you can stay on and talk about Jibboard, which we, as we established... Oh, I'll you know, stay on this we thanks. <laughs> we were warming up. Um, relates, relates to, relates to Gibraltar, you know, is named after Gibraltar. Well, my very um, delicate and elegant segue this time is from the dramas in the Ukraine and the oil prices and the wheat prices are now flowing through into financial markets and monetary policy all around the world, where this week, and it is quite a substantial historic thing, the European Central Bank has been forced to essentially give up its money printing and start increasing interest rates from below zero <laughs> to above zero. And uh, that has caused some sell-offs in the markets and is a symptom of the sort of problems we've had in the last three or four months where all this worry about central banks putting up interest rates to fight off inflation has caused investors to bail out of um, some markets and uh, worry about uh, a meltdown. So it's great to bring in Sam Stubbs, uh, the CEO of Simplicity. Sam, it's great to, great to hear you on the other side of the, the microphone, if you like, as a, as a regular listener to the, to the Hoon. It's, it's great to have you, have you in here to talk, you. talk about your stuff. And in particular, um, you've, you've got um, a whole bunch of um, occasionally nervous customers wondering what these ructions on financial markets mean for them and how they should deal with it. I mean, what, what are the sort of things you're, you're saying to people when they say, ah, I've just looked at my KiwiSaver balance and it's down. What do I do? Well, you know, I, look, I think to, to, to refer to what Peter said about how too much history here, we have to bring some more in there because, mm. you know, those who forget about it are doomed to repeat it. And you know, the interesting thing about the markets now to me is that everyone talks about them being unusual and crazy. And we certainly had a perfect inflationary storm. You know, you don't have a supply chain crisis, you have a war, and then you've had about $12 trillion worth of money printing all in the last two years. So you couldn't create a bigger bonfire for inflation uh, if you tried. Um, but if you go back 10 or 12 years, this is not unusual. You know, inflation of 4 or 5% in Western economies was pretty standard, right? And we just think it's shocking now. So I think people have, over the last 10 years, as they've collectively forgotten that they've basically been living in nirvana with ever lower, lowering interest rates, relative peace globally. And now we're getting back to something which is a little bit more normal to me. But it was interesting talking about, the, you know, Russia here as well as, you know, I, look, I'm an amateur amateur historian of, of Russia, and the one thing I learn is that in, in any battle of attrition, you, 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 Russia is not going to ever give in on a battle of attrition. You will never win. So if they have decided to dig their toes in, which they clearly have here, excuse me, um, then, then you know, I, I don't think things will change dramatically until they are given some diplomatic out. There has to be a manner of face-saving outcome for Russia regardless because they do not accept defeat. That is not an option for them. But anyway, in the in the world in the world economy, it seems to me that we're having. I mean, I would almost call it a very healthy correction, even though the circumstances are very weird here, and that we have actually forgotten 
what normal really is. We've been living in a very abnormal world for a long time. And normal is not that bad, by the way. I mean, if you have a look at India, for example, India is actually the economy's rocking, and yet they have inflation, and, and they're very used to living in a relatively inflationary times. They you know, we've, we, it's an interesting thing, eh, that the, the, the world's central banks since about 1990 have almost been too successful. You know, since we mandated around the world to control inflation, they've actually done a fantastic job. And, you know, when they perform the surgery on inflation, they do it with an axe. So it's a very imperfect and ugly thing. But the surgery happens, the operation happens and things work well. So they've done a great job. But in, 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 term, in, in the consequence of doing that, we've actually forgotten that, you know what? you know, three, four, five percent inflation is not that crazy and the world gets on and businesses invest and so on. So I wonder whether or not we are overly, you know, by contrast, what we've seen here is seems very dramatic, but in the context of long history, it's actually not that unusual at all. And tell, also, us about the, tell us about the Gibraltar crisis, please, Sam. When I saw that you were from somewhere called Simplicity, I thought you must make those old knitting patterns that my mother used to use, <laughs> or, or yeah. you know, from, from Simplicity. <laughs> yes, we, we thought long and hard when we actually trademarked the name there, whether or not people would confuse it. And <laughs> you're, you're one of the five or six that we found out, <laughs> that, uh, Peter. So the... Um, the yeah the jib crisis it's interesting isn't it eh? you know the fletchers have got 95 percent market share in jib and in plasterboard supply in new zealand now you know as any economist will tell you when anyone has 95 percent market share of anything it's trouble you know it, it's going to be trouble because that, that that is just not a a healthy competitive market and there's a lot of uh, theories as to how fletchers have got to that uh, market share and some of them are not not very pretty but the reality is that's where we are here right now. And 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 what they've managed to do is uh, stuff up gloriously the supply of jib, even though they've had 12 to 18 months uh, notice via building consent numbers in New Zealand. And, um, you know, they seem to have engaged in some pretty objectionable behaviour recently, apparently stockpiling it for their own projects while denying it to, to the well, That would never happen if you had 95% market share. So yeah. is, is, is the solution to this, Sam, that we maybe, you know, change the building regulations to allow the, the use of untamalized yeah. pine and, and, and a different kind of jib board well, possibly made by yeah. James Hardy? Yeah, we have an insane situation in New Zealand. We think we build good houses. Actually, the quality of housing is in New Zealand is very poor. And one of the reasons is you use jib as a bracing material. You would never use that overseas as a bracing material. Um, and and um, so, so we have relatively low quality houses. And But interestingly enough, plasterboard, which is... As commodity a product you could get in building anywhere else, it's just so simple. It's just a bit of gypsum with a bit of you know cardboard or paper on the side. Um, normally, in a market like ours, you'd have three or four very large suppliers, and it would be a very competitive market. So you know we're we're importing this stuff now from Thailand from Thai gyp, uh, gypsum, which is one of the three or four uh, global giants in this market. We're bringing it in with very high freight rates, so it's extremely expensive to import. But by the time we get it here, it's 20% cheaper than the locally sourced jib uh, for the, the, you know, the normal stuff inside your walls there. And if you stick it, the stuff in your bathroom, uh, which is the water resistant stuff, is 40% cheaper. Wow. And we're importing it from South Asia, from Thailand in eight weeks. If we ordered it from Fletcher's, it takes eight months. So there's, there's, there, there, there's been a breakdown in markets here. And I think you're right, Peter. The, the reason is, is that by hook or by crook, architects, builders, um, building uh, the councils and, and, and building consents basically have jib built in to the system. 
So it's extremely difficult not to use it. So how can you get away uh, with doing it? Simplicity Living is building 550 um, build-to-rent um, medium-density apartment-style homes in Auckland desperately needed. Yeah. So how can you, um, you know, take the risk that the Auckland Council decides not to give you the tick? Yeah, well, the Auckland Council has given us the tick because we build houses the old-fashioned way with concrete and bricks, something Peter will be very familiar with in England, as opposed to, you know, sticks and, 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 and cardboard, which a lot of New Zealand houses are built out of effectively. Um, the, the, we only use it for the internal lining and the bathrooms, whereas if you use it for the bracing systems, you use it for the structural integrity, which is what a lot of timber building in New Zealand uh, requires of jib, then the council are very nervous about signing off on that because the, the Fletcher product, the jib product is an approved product. And if you sign off on a non-approved product, you open yourself up to all sorts of product liability issues down the line. So one of the unfortunate downsides of the leaky buildings, um, uh, leaky homes syndrome is the council's got ultra conservative in anything that they would approve. And um, they pretty much all take the lead from the Auckland Council, even though there are 47, I think, um, building consent authorities. Auckland Council's the sort of intellectual leader here on this. Fortunately, now they are, they are um, you know, having a serious look at this because you've had a complete market dislocation now. It's, it's um, you know, it's, I would say capitalism has failed here, but it hasn't. What's happened is that um, you just haven't had a regulatory environment which allows for proper competition. It's a very common phenomenon in countries of this size where you have, you know, duopolies or oligopolies. And really this is where you have to point to the government. The government are the only people who can smash smash up the market and make it fair and, fair and uh, you know, level. Are there other areas where uh, simplicity living living can challenge the the dominance of Fletcher Building and Carters to bring in materials? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I think I mean what's going to happen with this Commerce Commission review is is if they do the right thing here, effectively will do what they appear to be doing for the supermarkets, which is basically make a whole lot of business practices which are legal in New Zealand illegal as they are overseas. So we have just had a very weird, I mean, Ireland at the end of the world here, we've developed a commercial um, operating environment in too many sectors, which is just, it shuts out competition. And so if the Commerce Commission can do that, I personally think the government probably has to get some form of emergency legislation here or regulation because 93 builders have gone bust so far this year. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. The real crisis is about, is it going to happen in the next six months? And hundreds of them could fall over because if you don't have the jib for your house, about a dozen, well, the house doesn't get completed and about a dozen trades rely on jib being put up. And um, if they don't have work, they don't have work. I mean, we were within four weeks of shutting our building sites just because there was no jib. So uh, and and we're a we're a big player in town now. So this is you know a big player in a small market. But so, so is this essentially one company's inability to supply a market which it now completely dominates is going to shut down a whole range of small builders who are have not a lot of cash flow or capital backing, and when one of their projects is delayed, they're pushed right to the edge. Is that what we're seeing? Yeah. Yeah, well, look, if you look at the average margin made on a residential, pro you drive down your road and you see a small building project, the average margin the builder makes on that is about 4% once it's completed. So it's in tiny margins, very thin. So only one or two things have to go wrong in the building and the project falls over, which is why so many consented properties never actually turn into houses. They don't even pass the, the consent process. 
So the so so very very thin margins there. And you know, if you had ninety five percent market share, you have tremendous visibility on where the demand's coming from. So uh, in my opinion, Fletchers have known damn well that this was a crisis in the making. I suspect that, and this is just my personal opinion, and hopefully we'll find out by the Commerce Commission what really went on here, but I suspect that the option that Fletcher's had, which was to import uh, the jib or, or plasterboard that it needed in bulk to satisfy the demand, was um, an unpleasant reality for a company that has 95% domestic market share. It didn't want people to get used to using an alternative imported product. And, 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 and even though it could have arguably rebranded it and made it look like jib, but for whatever reason, they didn't import. And, and look, and, you know, they've used arguments and, you know, it's almost like giving the market the two finger salute here. The arguments they've said is we welcome competition, uh, we're looking to import right now, but these are decisions that should have been made 12 to 18 Sam, months Sam, how, how big a factor was the was the leaky bill? You know, the, the I, I mean, I made a little joke about, well, not really a joke, but a, a, a jokeette about uh, James Hardy before. How, how big a factor was the whole sort of fiasco with leaky buildings and the, is, is how big a factor is that in the, both in the monopoly and the preference for jibboard? Oh yeah, I, I, well, I think probably a very big factor, Peter. I mean, it's it's you know these 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 things are always re relatively complex. It's hard to draw simple conclusions. But the one thing you do know is the building consent authorities here, and everybody got ultra conservative about materials. So and and uh, and it, you know the the known local supplier who had not been identified with leaky building problems because there's nothing there's nothing wrong with jib. It's not a bad material. It's just an average material for an average building solution. Um, so, so there was a sort of a rush towards the known. And also if you're an architect and you have a standard New Zealand standard building code there, if you just specify a number, it means that your product sourcing takes about 2% of your time. If you decide to get creative and outside that standard, you'll spend 50% of your time trying to source the right materials and get them approved and consented and so on. So it's too much palaver. And of course, you know, look, I think it's a masterclass in corporate lobbying. Uh, Fletchers have done this over decades and decades to get this written in. And, you know, they, in a sense, if you're a, you know, if you're a free market person, you've got to applaud them for that. But it has had a horrible consequence for New Zealand now uh, that, you know, it is literally, um, uh, you know, stopping buildings from getting built. I'm, I'm really curious too, Sam, about um, the process you're uh, going down to build 550 build-to-rent um, apartments because yeah. there is this argument or theory in New Zealand that because of the effective tax advantages for individual households uh, yep. to uh, buy rental properties or to expand their own properties and therefore increasing the prices, that the professional investors who would normally see very high prices like this as an opportunity to jump in and compete away this uh, super super profit in, in the value of houses, that they can't because they can't access the same tax advantages that individual investors yeah. can. Yeah. So um, this build to rent market is a potentially big solution to try and add extra supply to the market. But so far, the government hasn't really addressed the apparent um, tax advantages um, that competitors for you know, the, the big um, pension funds and others who would apply institutional capital to this. How come you guys are having a crack at it 
without those uh, the, the incentives being being changed. Yeah, yeah. Look, well, you know, there is a tremendous tax incentive to own your own house in this country. Uh, you know, we all know about that. But if you if you think about if you go to like England or Spain or France, where there's huge build to rent um, options available. Effectively, what those investors are doing, and to give you the, the idea of the scale, I mean, we actually want to build 10,000 homes, just 550 of the first ones we've got going. Why would we want to do that? It's because if you think about it, not as uh, an equity capital gains investment, but as an income investment, as an option to putting money in the bank or buying government bonds. And so that's how pension funds think about it. So if we get 1% or 2% above what we would get from government bonds or the banks, we're perfectly happy because the last bill you won't pay is your rent or your mortgage. So the cash flow is secure. It's very stable. You create a, a fixed interest substitute. And when you have KiwiSaver money like us, we have money just coming in every day. We need to invest this thing for 30, 40, 50 years, not try and take a punt on something short term. So the rest of the world thinks of this as a fixed interest substitute. New Zealanders always think of it as a capital gain and a tax-free capital gain play. And th that's very simple. So this is not unusual. And, and by the way, Bernard, we, you don't need tax advantages to do this. We, it, it's a very, you know, in fact, it's, from our point of view, any tax advantage is of short-term advantage. But if you're building an investment case on a tax break, that's a very perilous 30 or 40 year investment perspective, right? The next government can just reverse it. So, so um, it, it stacks up perfectly well. It's not new at all. It's just new to New Zealand and someone's got to start doing it. So we've decided to, I think also from our point of view, you know, we're a nonprofit owned by charity. You think about the, 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 the charities that we fund are always ambulances, the bottom of the cliff. The ultimate fence at the top of the cliff is a warm, dry home. And you know, there's a perilous shortage of those. If we can make a fair a fair margin for our investors above bank or bonds and do a whole lot of good on the way, why not? Yeah, I'm really interested too in that if you can get the scale, and there are other build to rent um, big investors who can come in there and get the scale, you're effectively changing the power dynamics in the building sector, yeah. so that future building the big monster on one side of the market who also own placemakers as the distributor to a lot of these small builders. Um, if you're able to get some real scale on the other side, you can have more of a, uh, a match between supplier and buyer than you currently have at the moment. Um, because at the moment, Fletcher's, it's a bit like shooting fish in a barrel. You're never going to have small um, uh, mom and pop builders be able to get any sort of well, um, purchasing yeah. power. And there's and there's the irony of Fletcher Fletcher building right like never have you had a, a a dominant market position like that in the building supply market in New Zealand yet it's still a very average performer in terms of share price, and so it's 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 an underperforming company so the market is certainly not dynamic in that regard. I mean I give you an example we're building finished homes these are apartments one two or three bedroom out of brick and concrete and steel, and they're $450,000 complete. That includes land cost, landscaping, everything, right? Now, that is about half, well, it's between 30 and 50% cheaper than an individual could go if they wanted to develop the same home. And how do you do that? It's just because in New Zealand, there's a phyllo pastry of fees. Everything is subscale, everything is bespoke, everything's designed for you, right? And if you take vertically integrated, just like, in, like we're not doing anything new here, this is what a pension fund in the UK would do, or Spain or France, and just vertically integrate the whole thing, take out all of those fees, go straight to the cash and the rent payments. And it's, it's a very simple, scalable business model. And in New Zealand, if we can do it, what we want to do, Bernard, is 
one of the things is just to show New Zealanders what's actually possible, that you can actually build a home for $450,000. And by the way, it's so warm and dry that half of the heaters have never been turned on because it's built, you know, you know, you, I mean, you, Peter, you'd be familiar with this in the UK, right? Concrete and brick houses, they're warm. <laughs> they're dry. <laughs> they last forever. Just walk, walk, walk through a street in Manchester and work out how long houses can really last. We have a building code that's designed to build houses for 50 years. You only have to build a home in New Zealand legally to last 50 years. Well, you only have to spend another 5% to make it last 100 and another 10 to make it last 200, right? So someone has to show New Zealanders that this crazy system we've got into, which has bespoke, wooden, low quality, incredibly expensive houses, it doesn't have to be the way we live. It, I'm it just really going to for a minute here, Sam. What's the role of Kaingaora in this? Well, they Does have, it a, have huge, a role. Yeah, they have a huge role to play, right? Because they're massive landowners. So they own, oh, I can't remember, but it's 50,000 homes maybe in New Zealand. A lot of those are on quarter acre sections and they're the old, you know, the old state houses. So what they're planning to do, and it's a reasonably sensible speaking, speaking thing. Of, speaking of buy to let of, or of, of a homeowners being able to buy, I'd, I'd like something like that. And yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> They're wonderful homes, right? <laughs> They're built with real timber. But the the um, what they do is they take a what they call a super lot, a big lot, and they'll say, okay, we'll we'll get rid of the the, the homes there. One third of it will build will and, and will sell off to the market, and that will fund the infrastructure and the building of the other third for social housing. And then they're now talking about one third and build to rent. So you can either buy rent or you'll get it as a state, yeah, you know, as a social. So, uh, but should, should they be should Kangaroo be privatized and and really organizations like some simplicity organized to do this to do yeah. the, to do the job they're currently doing look i think that's an, that, that'll be a conversation in 10 years time when you have people like ourselves who are really large scale home builders who might be able to do that in scale uh, right now uh, i don't think there's anyone who could do it and certainly if you're subject to the typical Fletcher challenge supply chain problems, it's going to be incredibly expensive. You know, in theory, Kainga Aura should be a massive buyer and a very efficient builder. The price they're building homes for is well in excess of the price that we're building homes for. So I don't know what's going on there. Um, but um, it, 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 I would agree with you, but certainly in the future, you'd want to have a viable alternative, wouldn't you? You'd want to have some competitive pricing pressure in the market there. Yeah. Fascinating discussion. Thank you very much, Sam, for coming in. And it's great to give you, to ensure there's been the time to sort of drill down into these problems we've got and how we're trying to address them. I found it fascinating. It's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and also thank you to Professor Robert Patman. And we drilled down into some of the issues in, um, in Ukraine and Europe too. I, I, we're going we're gonna to solve the world's problems. Eventually we'll get there. <laughs> Um, I'm, and, I'm uh, extremely Pete, worried about the comparison between us and um, James May and, and Jeremy Clarkson, though. What, what does that make Sam and Sam and what, what does that make? It's Sam just a wonderful Hallett? dynamic. It's a wonderful dynamic, gentlemen. That's why you've still got all your listeners on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, this is good. And and next time we need to um, do one of their special trips to like uh, Peru to, <laughs> to do one of their one of their one of their trips. They did one in Ukraine. <laughs> Is oh, that right? Wow. Yeah. Yikes. Um, maybe not Ukraine. but um, well, There's going to be some house building opportunities there. Ah, yes, indeed. Indeed. That's actually one of the interesting, all these great um, uh, images you're seeing from 
uh, Ukraine of you know what what buildings look like in a lot of these places and just about all of the places you're seeing very high rise very dense you know um, obviously you know communist era um, uh, house building but there's a lot of them and yeah I, I do I do wonder about that anyway Peter do you have a skateboarding dog for us to finish on not a terribly good skateboarding dog, although I'm just abusing um, uh, um, Kathleen Lauderdale, who's accusing us of running a manual today, when in fact True. we had a woman yep. last week. We frequently yep. no, had women. No, we usually have a woman. We sometimes even give them gins and tonics, and then Patrick Smelly, Smelly accuses me of flirting with them. Um, <laughs> no, no. I, there, I, which would never a, happen. This is a good point, and we do need to work a lot harder at um, uh, balancing things up. But... Um, no, this is good. You've got a you've got a skateboarding dog. Well, just a little one, a little a little one, which I picked up on the Reuters Oddly service, which is a, a couple of people being rescued from a chocolate tank at the Mars factory in Pennsylvania, and it's it's unclear quite how they got into there, but they were they, you know, which sounds to me like Bliss is <laughs> swimming around in a chocolate tank uh, owned by the Mars firm. <laughs> That's that's one way to go. If you're gonna go, mm. that's one way to go. Exactly. Yeah. Go go in enrobed in enrobed in chocolate. <laughs> hey, thank you very much, everyone. Uh, it's been wonderful to have you on again at the end of the week. Thank you to Professor Robert Patman and, and to uh, Sam Stubbs from Simplicity. Peter, great to see you there. I'm jealous again. I'd love to be there in that sunny um, London uh, um, uh, scene. And uh, next week it's Spain. Is that right? Uh, not next week, but actually, I might have to do this from Stansted Airport next week. But that, ah. that'll be that'll be, and then we can do it. We can we can talk about the um, the failure of all the British airlines to get anybody moving. <laughs> there's always We're a always topical. There's always a segue too. No, that's fantastic. Kakita, yeah. uh, no, everyone, have a great time. Have a great weekend. Right. We'll see you all see next you week. Thank you, Robert. Thanks, Sam. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Bye.